This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from AJ Bell and Shares, and with me is Tom from AJ Bell. Hello. So it's our first podcast of 2021. And we're certainly not short of things to talk about. So the events of the past few weeks have very significant implications for anyone who's hoping to make a return on their hard-earned savings via the markets. And so this podcast will go through all this uh, barrage of news. But first up, Tom, how was your Christmas break? It was fine. Thanks, Dan. Um, fairly fairly quiet and limited, as uh, as I'm sure yours was as well. So we're... We we remained in our in our little flat in um in North London and got a little Christmas tree and did a very very small exchange of presents and watched a large number of Christmas films and uh, drank a fairly sizable amount of Christmas booze as well. Um, it was obviously rubbish not being able to go and see family, but there was. I don't know. For me, it was there's a slightly there was. I've always kind of thought it would be nice one year to do a Christmas where you don't have to travel about all over the place and see people. And obviously, that's been forced upon us this year. And it was it was nice in one way. It was nice not to have to be on trains and to have to go and sleep in you know the back bedroom of your nan's house or whatever. Um, but I think. On the after after I don't know three or four days, I was starting to you start to kind of get bored. So so many games of Scrabble you can play, um, especially when it's one on one Scrabble. And so I was kind of craving for something, some social contact that wasn't over over Zoom. How was how was yours? Yeah, very good, very nice. Lots of sleep, which is always good. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I was I was actually sadly keeping my eye on the news. There's so much stuff going on. Yeah. Um, and to think that two weeks ago we were here um, chatting away about stuff, and and in that subsequent two weeks we've had, um, you know, you had the Brexit trade deal, you've had a new lockdown, um, you've got some big things happening at the moment as we record this in in the US. Um, you've also got cryptocurrency, Bitcoin prices going through mm-hmm. the roof. I mean, this is this is you, you expect Christmas to be a very quiet period, but it, it's definitely not. So in this week's episode, we're going to look at the impact of the Brexit deal and new lockdown measures on the markets. We'll also run through the latest support measures for individuals and businesses affected by lockdown and why political events in the US are moving stocks around the world once again. Later in the show, I'll be talking to former Pensions Minister Steve Webb about some of the big issues facing people in retirement as well. But for now... Let's talk markets. Dan, what have you got for us? So let's start with the Brexit trade deal. So just before Christmas, we had confirmation this was going through. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, sterling has jumped just over 2%. Um, but it's important to note that sterling had already been rallying since September. So um, before the trade deal was announced, sterling had already gone up by 5% in, in a couple of months. So so really what we, what we have here is that people thought a trade deal would be this big trigger for everyone to say, okay, UK equities now look a bit more attractive. We know how things are going to work. Um, there's a bit more certainty about the lay of the land and sort of positive for sentiment. And I wonder if there's going to be lots of people who are disappointed by how the UK equity market has performed since the trade deal has come out. Now, you've got the lockdown 
announcements have just been confirmed. And that does sort of confuse the situation a bit short term. But but really, we, we, we've got this catalyst now that we have certainty about the trade deal. So really, I wonder whether we're in a period where people are just taking stock of what's going on. And actually, it could be in the coming weeks and months where you start to get a bit more interest from overseas investors because these are the people who have been really shunning uk stocks for uh, you know essentially the last four and a bit years um so just to give you put some things in context so since um the, the brexit trade deal was announced on 24th of december the FTSE 250 is up by nearly three percent so this is um about a half of the companies in this index do business primarily in the uk so this is kind of seen as the best play best index to sort of judge what's going on in the in the uk um but it's actually the FTSE 100 done a lot better so this is up by five percent since that period so this has actually been driven by um oil producers commodity producers um and uh, as we speak uh, the banks are suddenly sparking into life as well so um all, all of that would suggest that um investors are looking at cheapest cheap stocks uh, and ones that might benefit from the reopening of um, society as the vaccines start to be rolled out and, and sort of the economies start to rebuild again. Um, so you've had some select bits of good news from the likes of Next. It shares are up 10% over that period since Christmas Eve. Um, say the banks haven't really moved, but the one that sort of caught me by surprise was the house builders. So you'd think that um, if sentiment is improving towards the UK, the house builders are a natural play on the UK economy, but they're actually slightly down a bit. Um, you know, they've got strong order books. Um, the, the, the property market seems to still be doing quite well, helped by this sort of stamp duty um, relief that runs um, until the end of March. Uh, and so the and the DIY boost is going to continue. I would have thought uh, if we're all stuck down in lockdown again, um, people have been spending lots of money on doing their houses, and I think that trend will continue. But I think you have to offset that by concerns about rising unemployment, and um, perhaps people might be a bit concerned about letting tradespeople into their home if they're worried about sort of transmission of COVID. Um, there's also been some talks about a shortage of building materials as well. So really, uh, overall, I don't think Brexit trade deal has, has triggered this massive surge in UK equities as people perhaps expecting, um, but it might still happen perhaps on a slower sort of slower basis, which might be might be still be um, sort of a positive outcome. So um Takeover stuff is probably worth touching on. So, I mean, it's the, the one that sort of immediately jumped out uh, as the markets returned after Christmas was the approach for Entain, which used to be called GVC. So, Tom, are you a gambling man? Um, are you, do, you, do you sort of bet on casinos and, and sort of sports stuff? Oh, I have I have, a, I have a flutter, like a pound or two pounds every now and then. I also I also went to Vegas last year, so that was the most that was the most extravagant gambling trip I've ever been on to. Uh, to watch the uh, the Tyson Fury Deontay Wilder fight, I actually came away from Vegas with more money than I went there with. So I'll never, ever, ever be going back because I know I'd lose it all immediately. <laughs> well, I mean, so so Entain is is a big gambling company, and um, what we've seen in the last few months is um, the big American casino, traditional casino, physical um, mm. premises uh, places. They realise that their, their their future is more and more dependent on online rather than people just simply walking through their doors to to have a bet. So Caesars uh, has made a takeover bid for 
its online joint venture partner, William Hill. Now we've got MGM wants to buy Entain, which is its online partner. So um, it's, it's, there's very much there's a sense of logic behind this approach. At the moment, uh, Entain is saying it's not the, the, the the offer price is far too low. Um, all the analysts are saying, yeah, it's worth, the business is worth so much more. But um, but I think what the, perhaps on a wider scale, one of the things I was expecting to happen as soon as a trade deal for Brexit was announced was that we'd start to get a flurry of takeover activity. Mm. And certainly there were some fund managers who were saying to me before Christmas that they'd been talking to lawyers and advisors who were saying, well, yeah, we, we, we've heard of lots of um, research beans that has been done by foreign companies into, into UK stocks um, to see what's what is there anything worth doing? But they wouldn't make any approaches or, from a takeover perspective until they knew whether there's going to be a deal or not for Brexit. So now that we have this trade deal, is this the trigger point? So I do think you're going to see in the coming months a lot of takeover activity amongst UK stocks. A lot of them look cheap, um, certainly from perspective of um, overseas companies. When you take in you factor in sort of currency conversion as well, but I think you know this is a this is a definite trend. Um, and if we if we just sort of move on to some of the other things, so obviously in the last few days we've had news for lockdown. Now I was expecting the stock market to have a bit of a wobble on this news that um, you know, Scotland and England in full lockdown, Wales has got very tight restrictions as well. Um, but actually, the, the, the sort of stock market in a way. Wasn't that bothered about it? I think it was. I think it was just expected. So many people were thinking that come January we're going to have a tough time. Originally, it was it was mm. the price to be paid for letting us go and um, mix with people over Christmas. Now, whilst that didn't quite happen for for everyone, um, I just think it was perhaps it, it was already expected, already priced in. So you, you actually on the day after, you know, the, the first day of trading after it was all announced, holiday company Tui. Uh, and pubs group Fuller's, both of whom heavily affected by lockdown measures, they saw their share prices rise. So that's you know that says that investors have got their eye on the future. Mm. They're looking at the vaccine, and they're saying, well, society will be reopening soon. There is a cure to this um, this situation. It's rough. It's tough at the moment but we're going to get through this. And I think this is what um, it's very important when you're investing to understand the stock market is very much about pricing and what they think will happen in the future. It's not about reacting to very, very short-term stuff. So on the subject of lockdown, Tom, what is actually happening with business support and um, perhaps if any of our listeners are sort of been or, or under the threat of having to be furloughed, can you mm. just remind us, I know that Rishi Sunak has come out with some new measures for businesses, but where where did consumers and businesses stand at the moment? Yeah, so I'll I'll split it up into the the stuff that's for for businesses and the stuff that's for relevant for individuals. So as you said, we've we've entered this kind of lockdown 3.0, so the third version of of lockdown measures Boris Johnson announced in the start of the new year. Schools are going to be closed. I think he said at least until. February half term. So so realistically, 
before anything goes back to normal, both for society and for and for businesses, we're going to be looking at March, April. So into the springtime when hopefully the, the weather's a bit warmer and the virus is slightly less prevalent. And of course, the vaccine is doing what it is uh, it's supposed to be doing. So with the economy closed down for that longer period of time, you obviously need more support measures in place to make sure that businesses can get through what's going to be a a fairly bleak winter period. So alongside uh, Boris Johnson's announcement, we had um, a set of announcements from Rishi Sunak. So this amounts to about £4.6 billion in new lockdown grants. Um, So if you remember, the the government's already through the furlough scheme and through loans and through grants to businesses has um, supported businesses by via hundreds of billions of pounds. Obviously, at some point in time, that money is going to need to be paid back, or certainly some of that money. But for now, the focus is very much on the emergency response to coronavirus and getting these businesses through the next few months. So that 4.6 billion, most of that is um, via targeted grants, which are available to businesses that have been closed as a result of coronavirus. And the level of grant that's available is based on their rateable value. So that's just the uh, that's just a, a value that's used by HMRC to calculate the, the business rates that different businesses pay. So it's a, a grant of up to £4,000 if the rateable value is £15,000 or less, up to £6,000 if the rateable value is £15,000 to £51,000 and £9,000 if the rateable value is £51,000 or more. And that's a, a grant rather than a loan. So money that can be handed to those business businesses to help them get through what's going to be a, a really, really tricky period. The Treasury expects um, about 600,000 businesses to benefit from those grants. In addition, Rishi Sunak announced uh, a new £594 million discretionary fund. I mean, it, in, in this kind of mad COVID world, £594 million feels like a drop in the ocean, um, but that's money that's intended to support struggling businesses and, and can be can be handed out on a discretionary basis. Um, I think for for most people, though, the, the most relevant thing will re- will continue to be the, the furlough scheme. And before Christmas, actually, the government confirmed that that furlough scheme was going to continue until the end of April. And it's going to continue on the terms that we had when it was first introduced back in um, back in March, April. I think it was April. Um, so it's very much back to the future in terms of the, the support scheme that's in place. So the government will continue between now and um, the end of April to contribute up to to contribute eighty percent towards employees' wages, where those employee the employees are, are furloughed and are no longer working, up to a maximum of two thousand five hundred pounds a month. Now, as I said, the government had started the process of unwinding that scheme back in August. Um, so the government support was being slowly pared back and employee, employers were going to have to take on more responsibility, more financial responsibility for paying the wages of workers who weren't in the office or weren't weren't working doing the job that they were being paid to do. But we've gone back to where we were before because clearly as a country, we're in full lockdown now. And so lots and lots of people, particularly in the hospitality and retail industries, aren't able to work at all. So those measures are going to be in place. Um, guaranteed loans as well. So various uh, various loans, uh, so cheap loans for businesses. So one what's called a bounce back loan, a coronavirus business interruption loan scheme, and a large business interruption loan scheme as well. So those are cheap loans for businesses that need to be paid back, but are paid back at low rates. They're going to be available and open for applications until March 2021. And as I've been going through those, it's all, it's all, it feels like it's almost become 
another industry in and of itself. The, uh, the, the understanding and knowing the different support schemes that exist as a result of coronavirus. And I suppose that just reflects how, how wide the impact of the, of, the, of the virus has been on various parts of the economy and just how much support the government's having to meet out to various different sectors and different industries. Yeah, and I think it's you know it's it's because this support is is very much needed, um, and you know, even today, you know, Greg's are talking about um, having to make more job cuts, and mm. um, I, th- I think you're going to see you know it's an unfortunate situation. You will see more people being furloughed or, or perhaps having their their jobs sort of taken away completely um, in the coming months. Whilst you know there's talk about. Um, eyes on the future and thinking mm. about reopening society that you know we do still have a very difficult period to get through first um and so it's now i guess it's all support is welcome but you know, the question is is it enough yeah uh, is it enough and what else might happen next yeah well, one, one more thing um, i'd add i think when i was last uh, on the podcast at the back end of 2020 we talked about um the the budget so there's scheduled to be a budget on the 3rd of march even this soon after that announcement i think that was in december it feels like the chances of that budget actually happening are lower than they were the last time we spoke if it does happen i suspect the the tax measures that a lot of people were waiting for so there was a thought that that budget might be used to announce or at least give a direction of travel for some of the ways that Rishi Sunak was going to look to pay for some of these costs of coronavirus, um, given that we're still in that emergency phase of the response. And it's pretty unlikely that we're going to be out of that phase by the 3rd of March. I think the the, the likelihood of us getting any really big announcements is diminishing by, by the week. So Yeah, maybe, maybe they just postponed that budget by a few months rather than... Yeah, it, well, it, I mean, the budget's already been flexible, so it wouldn't be a surprise if it was pushed back uh, a little bit, and that seems fair enough given the circumstances. So back to markets then, Dan, and there's been some big news happening in the US as we speak. Once again, big news in the US. So what's going on across the pond? Yeah, so literally as we're recording this, um, we're in the middle of getting results for Georgia's runoff election. So... Mm-hmm. Um, Raphael Warnock has, has been confirmed um, to be the first African-American to win a U.S. Senate seat in Georgia. Um, so now all eyes are on the the other um, Democratic contender, John Ossoff, um, who's currently in the lead in, in this contest to decide which party controls the upper chamber of Congress. So so from from the the market is currently taking the view that um, the Democrats will get this. And so. There were some tech stocks are sort of falling a bit. Treasury yields are rising, but it, I think people are now sort of looking at it and thinking, well, actually, look, Biden looks like he's going to be in a stronger position when he gets into the White House mm-hmm. to be able to push through his policies. Because um, if you if you go back, uh, even a couple of weeks ago, there was all the assumption that there would be um, sort of you'd have uh, a sort of a shared situation where you've got. Um, the Republicans and Democrats uh, sort of having to sort of fight out any any sort of um, suggestions by Biden and things will take basically gridlock in in government. So um, now it, you know it, it changes things and so the markets are very sort of 
pricing in what they think will happen next. So you've had US government bonds and tech stocks uh, essentially being sh- sold down on the prospect of higher corporate taxes and a bis- mm. bigger fiscal stimulus that ultimately could could feed through to inflation. So US 10-year treasury yields have hit 1% for the first time in more than nine months. So just remember that bond prices fall as yields rise. Um, so greater stimulus could boost growth expectations for the US. And you know, there's been a suggestion that might lead to full employment earlier than expected. So uh, essentially, that might mean the Federal Reserve looks to tighten monetary policy in 2023 rather than previous expectations for 2024. So um, essentially, tech stocks are, are under pressure because Biden has talked about um, sort of increasing regulation for this sector. Uh, he also wants to push up taxes as well, so that might hurt corporate profitability. Um, the energy sector is probably one to, to look at a bit more closely now. He's very much into a sort of, um, green policies he wants to push through. We've already seen lots of green or energy-related stocks. This is sort of renewable energy rather than oil stuff. Uh, renewable energy um Equipment manufacturers, for example, uh, rallying in in the latter half of last year. Um, so all eyes are beyond. Will, will this this trade continue? This trend upward trends for these stocks, um, particularly now if it looks like it's going to be easier for him to push through his policies. Um, and an increased inflation expectations would actually support sort of value stocks more. Um, so I think that sort of the, the highly rated growth stocks that have been doing well up until recently um, could come under a bit more pressure now. So uh, this is obviously next week, we'll give you a bit of an update about how things, the final results turned out. Um, and it's and it may well have happened by the time you get to listen to this sort of finished, polished podcast and it's published. But um, the other big news over the last, um, you know, the period over Christmas um, has been this massive rally in, in Bitcoin. So uh, mm. just un- near the start of December, it was trading just below $20,000. Uh, now it's currently trading uh, nearly $35,000. I mean, this is a massive rally. Um, so rather than go through it now, um, we're going to put something together and look at this in in more detail, either next week or the week after in the podcast. But don't worry, it is coming soon. Um, so enough about the markets. Let's move on to our big interview of the week. So Tom's got friends in high places and he's managed to grab some time with former pensions minister, Sir Steve Webb, to talk about pressing issues facing people in retirement. Um, so Steve now works for the actuarial consultancy Lane, Clark and Peacock. Uh, he brought his colleague Dan Mekulsis along for a chat as well. So the three of them talk about the big changes that Steve helped to bring about in 2015 with how people access their pension savings. Uh, They also chat about sustainable withdrawal strategies and the challenge of generating a retirement income when dividends are thin on the ground. So sit back and enjoy this interview. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Sir Steve Webb, former Liberal Democrat MP and Coalition Pensions Minister, and Dan Mikulskis, both of whom now work for Lane, Clark and Peacock, one of the largest and most influential actuarial consultancies in the UK. Hello, both. Thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? All good? Great, thank you. Yeah, really good. Good stuff. So LCP have written two excellent papers on retirement income recently, one on the so-called 4% withdrawal rule, 
and the impact of quantitative easing on that rule, and one on dividends and the search for income, both of which I think feel incredibly topical given the 12-month period we've just experienced. So, Dan, if if you're able to kick off, um, perhaps just by explaining what exactly the 4% rule is to, to listeners who aren't familiar with it, and then why it may have come under pressure in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, so I mean, the 4% rule came out of a load of research done in the 1990s by an American um, financial advisor called William Bengen. Mm. And there's a bit of an irony to this, actually, because he wanted, he, he was a bit sort of sick of a lot of the rules of thumb that sort of um, uh, were, were very, very common at the time in terms of withdrawal rates. So he wanted to put some real robust analysis around it and wanted to mm. move on from rule, rules of thumb. Um, and he actually claims he, he never actually uh, called it the 4% rule. But of course, the irony is that the outcome of his research was that this 4% withdrawal rate mm. seemed a pretty good sustainable rate and it became known as, as, as the four percent rule even though what he was trying to achieve was um was moving on beyond those yeah. simple rules of thumb um so so anyway so what the four percent rule basically says is that if you have a retirement pot and you and you retire in that first year you you can with, withdraw four percent of that pot in monetary terms and then each year you take that monetary amount the pound and pence amount effectively increase it with inflation each year. Um, and then obviously you invest your portfolio on the side um, and that that ought to be a sustainable um, a withdrawal rate. And he, he worked with 30-year retirement periods. Yeah. So he was saying oh, it ought to sustain you for 30 years. And when he said sustainable, it was quite being quite cautious. So he was trying to, he was looking back over history, every possible retirement period. And when he did his work, there were very few periods where you would have run out of money with that with that rule, um, which actually makes it then quite a conservative rule. So very few periods where you ran out, lots of situations where you actually ended up with a lot more than that. But that, but that's, I think that rule has really framed a lot of the conversations around retirement spending and withdrawal rates in the decades since. Yeah, so so it's, it's, it really has it really has caught on. I think particularly amongst the the financial advisor community, and I think increasingly um, now something that, that's talked about, I guess in the in the financial press, and something that self investors will be aware of as well so the idea that if you've got hundred thousand pounds pot and you're age 65 and you're healthy then you can take in today's terms roughly four thousand pounds a year from that pot each year and in most market circumstances you should you shouldn't end up running out of money in retirement so that was the thinking um why why is that rule coming under question i know you said at the start it wasn't intended as a rule by Bengham, but it's been taken on as a as a rule of thumb and i think rules of thumb are very are very handy for, for for investors in deciding what to do when they're when they're taking an income from the, from their funds so what why has that come under under pressure in in the last uh, last five or ten years well, two big issues really here. Mm. There were two things we looked at. So, so one of them was um, low bond yields today, um, and that that you know to, to put that very clearly, you know if you wind back ten years, you could get you could earn four percent returns a year by buying a gilt. So the safest yeah. investment, pretty much going from a UK investor, put your money in your gilt, you can earn nice four percent uh, returns a year by holding those gilts to maturity. You know today that that number is almost zero. And you don't get much more than 4% probably from investing in equities. 
So there's just been this huge shift in in the, the forward-looking returns, mm. um, and th- and that has really we, we think um, changed the sustainability of that rule because you just can't get the returns out of your portfolio that he was sort of um, assuming you could in his analysis, which used historical returns. That's that's one issue, and the second one is charges, total mm. total fees. So his his initial analysis. Uh, didn't take any fees into account. Uh, there were since some other academics who, who included fees and didn't think it changed the picture loads. But specifically, the combination of fees and low interest rates is a really, really dangerous one. Um, because you know, in, in some cases, you know, some individuals could be paying total charges of upwards of 2% per annum. Um, and that could be eating up a really mm. large part of your returns uh, today, especially if you're in a lower risk sort of portfolio. Um, so a couple of real challenges there. We felt it needed a bit of exploration into to what actually works these days and what the implications are for asset allocation. Yeah. And so in terms of, I, th- I think I think anyone listening to this at the moment who who, who has thought that the 4% um, rule might be appropriate will we'll probably be asking the question, what's an appropriate rule of thumb now? So w- would, you, would you say that are rules of thumb not useful in this space, or is it a case of downgrading the 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 four percent rule to a to a three percent rule or a three point five percent rule, or, or do you feel that it it's more based on, on on individuals and the and the charges, for example, that they're that they're paying on their pensions? Yeah, I mean, if if you want an exact like for like, mm. you probably you probably have to say that you know three percent is the new four okay. percent, I think. But that probably is a little bit too simplistic. I mean, I, I know in practice, many um, financial advisors will work with their clients and have much more dynamic kind of approaches. I mean, there are entire books written mm. on updates to the four percent rule. All these sorts of different ways you can do smart little. Um, ways that kind of vary your, your your withdrawals a little bit. So there's a lot of smart work you can do with, with financial advisors um, to work on that. But the, I suppose the one bit that we picked on was more on the investing side, mm. on how you should actually invest to achieve those. Um, and what, what we sort of found there was there's a big, there's actually a big risk in uh, in opting for lower risk portfolios. You, you, you want to have a very decent amount of growth assets mm. in your portfolio. Otherwise, you're sort of dooming yourself to failure through low returns rather than through investment losses. Um, and so one point we were trying to make was you probably want to have more equities um, in your decumulation portfolio, in your drawdown portfolio, than maybe what you thought. Um, and I think that's quite a key point that, that is, um, you know, the industry is at large is taking a bit of time to catch up on that point. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I think um, his, his, historically, uh, people haven't, uh, haven't always thought of the, the retirement income phase as a, as a point in time where you would be taking huge amounts of, of risk. But clearly, the, the pension freedoms have really shifted the kaleidoscope on that. And if you're, if you're talking about someone who's entering, say, drawdown at age sixty-five, who's healthy, who's potentially going to have thirty years or more to have their their money invested for, then there's certainly an argument that a decent proportion of that money, they should consider having it in risk assets. Although, of course, we, we need to always mention that um, any any investments that people make need to be in line with their own risk tolerances and their preferences and and all the uh, all the rest of it. Um, Steve, if I could if I could just bring you in on this. Now, you, you of course, were, were in, in government when um, the pension freedoms were, were introduced, and that's kind of the, the context through which we're, we're viewing a lot of these retirement income strategies and the way that people are behaving in retirement as well. Most people now tend to uh, tend to keep their money invested and make choices for themselves about the the kind of income they want to take through um, through through drawdown. So first of all, I mean, on the four percent 
rate do you, do you think do you think rules like that are, are useful for for investors and do you, do you have any concerns that that people might be withdrawing too much money at the moment it is funny that um in the search for a rule of thumb in the world of pensions mm. the four percent rule is almost the only one we've got and here we are saying it doesn't work <laughs> uh, certainly in government we scrabbled around for rules of thumb you know we sat there in government saying well we've got five fruit and veg a day mm. we kind of know, everybody knows that although nobody follows it as far as i can see um but there, what are you know how much should you save how much can you draw down and there is a, a distinct lack of these rules and then it turns out that the one that we thought we had we don't have so i do think it's important to tailor to individual circumstances mm and this is where the whole advice guidance issue comes in you know uh, it's not just about that individual pot it's that pot in the context of your other parts your state pension your spouses or partners income your house your inheritance mm. your care you know and so i think it's incredibly hard to come up with a single rule but i do think i think dan's point's very interesting about taking more risk than you might have mm. thought i guess i put it in retirement and i suppose you know i was thinking about this i was thinking it's turned out with pension freedoms that the problem wasn't Lamborghinis, it was Skodas. You know, it was actually people taking too too little risk. You know, uh, the FCA put some figures out recently saying just how vast amounts of money sitting in cash, negative real returns and so on. So funnily enough, you know, direct answer to your question, Tom, now, now, now that I'm not a politician, I have to answer your questions, um, is am I... Am I worried about people taking money out too quickly? By and large, no. I'm worried about people actually taking too little risk, uh, you know, and actually not making the most of the money they've got. Yeah, that's good. For, 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 those, for those listeners uh, who, who aren't familiar with uh, Steve Webb's comments in the wake of the announcement of the pension freedoms, he, what, what, was the, what was the precise quote that's followed you around, Steve, that you were, you were comfortable with people spending their, spending their retirement pots on, on Lamborghinis if that's what they wanted to do? Was More it along those lines? Yeah. By a BBC journalist, I'd like to say, but they um, they cut the question. So the journalist said, how, how do you feel about the Lamborghini set? And I said, if people want to buy a Lamborghini, that's fine by me. And they cut the question. <laughs> so Classic. So I woke up and announced to a grateful nation it was fine by me to spend money on a Lamborghini. Yeah, so so the, the the concern now is rather not rather than being a Lamborghini, although although Skoda's I think uh, have, have have improved as a car from from back in the day, haven't they? I don't I don't want the, the name of the good name of Skoda to be dragged through the mud here. That's uh... no, I don't, I don't want AJ Bell to be sued by anything. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you think? And actually, I think I think that's uh, that's an interesting point because we've I think one of the one of the re- reassuring things we we saw in um, the second quarter of this year, so that so HMRC produces. Um, statistics on the number of people accessing their pensions flexibly um, and the amount that they're taking out. And usually in the in the second quarter, understandably, at start of April, new tax year, you see lots more, more you usually see the peak of people accessing their pension and people taking out the most money in, in the tax year. And what we what we saw this year when when things really hit the skids and markets were, you know, people were experiencing in some cases double digit falls in in the value of their, their portfolios we actually saw people reacting it hopefully in the way that you would want to see them react and and the the total value of withdrawals reduced um and the, and the, and or certainly flattened off and um, suggesting that people were either pausing access to their to their pension um or reducing their their withdrawals in face of that of that more market volatility so presumably steve for you, for you as one of the architects of those reforms that kind of that kind of behavior is encouraging and suggests that people are by and large, behaving in a in a way that's that's sensible and 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 are, and are considering the same sustainability of their, of their withdrawal plan, plans when making their their retirement income decisions. 
I think that's a, an interesting observation, Tom. And I, I always make the point that the people who've got pension pots, meaningful pension pots at retirement at the moment, did so in a world in which saving wasn't mandatory. So for most of them, they have chosen, they've made active choices to deprive themselves whilst in work, to put money aside. Mm. So these are not the mad spendthrifts. These are the cautious, the prudent, the people who can defer gratification. So, you know, it was never that group who were going to go mad with pension freedoms, in my view. And I think, as you say, the evidence bears that out. I think the other HMRC stats or FCA stats that came out over the summer suggested more people taking less money out mm. under pension freedom. So there's this slight, there was an uptick, I think, in the summer of the volume, mm. the numbers of people tapping into DC pots, which, of course, is exactly what you'd expect. You know, people started to worry about the finances being furloughed, all the rest of it, but not taking stupid amounts out, you know, taking a bit more perhaps to tie them over. My worry would be next year, and as much on the DB side as the DC side, that's probably a separate podcast but you know we wonder whether if people start losing their jobs in their droves mm. they're over 55 they then go back to an old db pot want to transfer it out because it's obviously potentially huge value uh, and i think that's something we need to monitor closely yeah yeah that's interesting um and so we mentioned at the start of the podcast there were two papers um the lcp had written so one on the four percent rule but a, a, another on a key element of lots of people's retirement incomes um dividends so for a long time, investors have have felt that they could pretty much rely on dividends to bolster their retirement incomes. And indeed, the, the idea of uh, following a natural income strategy where you, you don't touch your underlying pot and uh, and are able to just live off the dividends that that your underlying lying investments produce was was a reality for, for lots of people and a, and a great way for them to to manage their their pot through retirement. But but Dan, that's been that's been becoming increasingly difficult isn't it so can you can you just explain what why and what what the potential implications are for for retirement income investors of that trend yeah thanks tom exactly it has it has become more difficult i mean what what we've seen in the past is that dividend sort of investing has been an incredibly popular uh, sort of approach mm-hmm. um, and, and as a smaller side i mean for something so simple as dividends and so so sort of basic it can it, it can really lead to quite complicated um kind of logical um sort of rationalizations of, of different strategies it's it's an incredibly um incredibly sort of confusing area in some mm. ways but, but nevertheless a lot of people have have, have quite naturally um invested in ways that, that where they um, invested for dividends and what we've seen in recent years is that more and more that's meant some of those strategies have concentrated into a smaller and smaller number of stocks in the uk mm. um, and there's been lots of well-publicized issues with you know uk dividends have generally been falling the investment association had to reclassify their sort of dividend um, sectors a- accordingly and people who've been trying to do that have been pushed into a smaller and smaller set of um, of stocks in the uk and some of which did announce big dividend cuts this year. Um, so you sort of feel that you look at that strategy and you feel that was maybe being pushed into a less and less optimal kind of investment strategy mm. as, as that number of stocks was falling. Now, at the same time, when we look at our institutional clients, for example, we see a real opening up of global investment approaches, um, things like investing in high yield bonds in the US, emerging market debt and global uh, dividend paying equities. Um, all those sort of strategies are available now, of course, to the individual as well in a whole variety of different funds on all sorts 
to different platforms. Um, and so, so we, we, we just wanted to, to make the point that, um, you know, that it's, it's worth a reevaluation, you know, even if you are after um, dividends and yield, yes, it's harder today than mm-hmm. it was, no, no two ways about that. But opening yourself up to a more global uh, set of options, um, you, you can actually get back to reasonably decent portfolios rather than sort of being forced into this more and more concentrated UK approach. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 it's, it's extremely difficult for for investors around the country. I think twenty twenty in in particular has seen uh, dividend cuts like many investors will will never have seen it. Certain certainly while they've been while they've been taking an income in retirement, I think to at the last count it was somewhere in the region of forty seven billion worth of dividends had been had been cut in in twenty twenty. And I know I've spoken to. Um, various people, people who people who write into the, to the podcast and into shares, who've um, who who've been really hit by the the loss of the, their inability to generate an income from the the investments that they've got. And what one thing that I've I've always tried to say to people is that um, having a an income strategy in retirement is great and is very understandable. And if it works, that's fantastic. But you you also need to be prepared for a year like twenty twenty when it doesn't work and when the income isn't flowing freely from your underlying investments because none of this none of this stuff is guaranteed and I think I think I think 2020 for a lot of people this is going clearly it's been a, an awful year for, for for many reasons but in terms of retirement income investing I think it's been uh, a wake-up call to to lots of people that actually a lot of the the things that they perhaps took for granted and thought were were, were guaranteed absolutely um, aren't whatsoever, and I guess coming back to your to the freedoms and, and what we discussed earlier, Steve, the the idea of the idea of personal responsibility, and that's what the pension freedoms are all about. There's also a responsibility on on investors to take an active interest in in what they're doing, and not only plan for the good days, but plan for the days when when things aren't going so well as well. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's right, Tom. Yeah, and also with pension freedoms, I think something that people forget is how young the initiative mm. is. Because if it came in in 2015, so we're only five years on, broadly speaking, until that point, people would have annuitized, people with middling mm. pots would have annuitized. So we are still talking about pension freedoms mainly affecting people in their late 50s and early 60s, I would say. Obviously, there are some people mm. who, you know, haven't cashed in their pots and are older than that. But and so in a, in a way, it's still very early days for people to know how best to use the freedoms. Um, it's a set of people who in the past didn't have to make investment choices. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about here, isn't it? Really? You know, you just you've got your pot, you've got your annuity and you got on with your life. Suddenly you've got 30, 40, 50,000 pounds or more. You've got choices to make. And I think that's where financial journalists, platforms, consultants and so on really have to help people who've chosen to go down this route and who are perhaps not regularly seeing a financial advisor to have some basic principles, some understanding. And, you know, and I think just, you know, you invest in UK stocks because you, you they feel familiar and you like dividends because it's you don't have to do anything, it just pops into your bank account. Uh, and, and when you realise that that's investing in a narrow and narrow range of stocks mm. and exposing you to greater volatility, you know, it's a bit of a shock, really. And, and a lot of this has to be rethought in a pension freedoms world. And, you know, as I say, interesting question, 
you do these things at 55, 60, but what do you do at 75, 80? You know, are we still saying the same things to these people in 15 years' time? Or, you know, should they then be going and buying their annuities at that point? Yeah, yeah. And I think I don't know, that's that's something that um certainly I always try to try to stress when I'm I'm uh, when I'm writing for, for investors and whenever again, whenever I speak to investors at, at conferences, is that I think quite often there still is that mentality that it's um you you either buy an annuity or you go into drawdown. And those are the those are the only two options. And I think I think sometimes um I guess the, the pensions industry cognoscenti for want of a better word, so can can forget that a lot lots of lots of ordinary investors will will be are still stuck in a mindset which has been you know set set in stone for for decades that that you either buy an annuity or you keep your money invested in but the, the vast majority of people bought an annuity and actually for lots of people it'll be a case of having a bit of one and a bit of a bit of another and as you as you say Steve later in life the 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 equation for annuity purchase can start to look perhaps more attractive to people than the equation at age 65 i mean when you're when you're talking about someone buying an annuity at age 65 the certainly if they're a healthy individual then the 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 lack of flexibility if you're turning your whole pot into an annuity is something i think that that everyone really really needs to to think about um and thinking about the the pension freedoms and when they were when they were introduced in in 2015 obviously uh, a mixed reception from people some people were very much in favor some people were very much against but i think one thing that that most people agree on is that the annuity market wasn't working for consumers and was leading to quite a lot of poor outcomes for consumers as well. And so I think the the kick up the backside that that gave to the annuity market was a, was a positive thing, certainly in in my view. Anyway, but is is there anything in relation to those reforms, Steve, that that you that you regret, or is there anything in hindsight, clearly they were introduced quite quickly, anything in hindsight that you would do differently or change to the way that the pension freedoms work? People say it was done quickly, mm-hmm. and it was one of those rare budget announcements that wasn't leaked. I mean, you know, normally the <laughs> Chancellor sort of has a treasury have a grid from Sunday up to Wednesday of the budget with which announcement will be leaked on which day, and that one was obviously incredibly market sensitive. I think there was an annuity provider having their AGM that day, Someone walked into the AGM and said, "You do realise they've just abolished the only product they sell." Yes, I'm familiar. Um, so, you know, that was, a, that was a, a notorious day. Right. But in a way, it was announced with a year's notice. And some people said, "Oh, well, you know, there should have been two years' notice." Mm. But then there was already a huge pent-up demand one year in people who hadn't annuitized and wanted to use the freedoms. Um, but imagine if there'd been two years build-up of you know everybody just sitting on their money, and then this huge surge of money two years in. So, yeah, there was never a right answer, and to some extent. It wasn't apparent, for example, how the DB transfer market, mm. you know, pension freedoms was about DC. It was about water enrollment, people building a pot of money and then being forced to buy a poor value, apparently poor value annuity. And what I think probably nobody foresaw was the extent to which everyone on the DB side, when the, the mindset was, you know, gold standard, gold plated, why would you ever move out of DB? I think that was what nobody really foresaw, the extent to which people would say, wow, these freedoms are fantastic. I'm even going to move the value of some of my DB mm. rights across. So, you know, arguably that should have been foreseen better and perhaps more safeguards put in at the start at that point. But, but you know, actually, as you well know, Tom, there is a set of people, perhaps with multiple DB pots, for whom one DB transfer might be exactly the right thing. So giving people that choice, I think, is right. 
but probably not more still needs to be done around the whole sort of advice and guidance framework. Yeah, so I should be clear when I when I said when I said they were introduced at pace, I was talking about a pensions context, as you know, Steve. Pensions before the freedoms tended to move at a, a slightly slightly more glacial pace. So introducing any reforms within the space of of twelve months, I think, sets everyone's everyone's hairs on end. So um, that, that that it was a certainly made made for an exciting and interesting time for for both the people within the industry for one one good thing and another, and certainly for. For myself as a pensions journalist at the time, it, it kept me it kept me on my toes. So I thank you, thank you for that. Um, that was fantastic. So thanks very much um, to Steve Webb and Dan Mikulskis for for joining me today. Um, I think there was lots of lots of great things for investors to take away from that. So that's everything from us this week. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, please do share it with anyone else you think will be interested, and it would be great if you could leave a review of the show if possible. So we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.